The Venn diagram of the world's most isolated places and the world's most populated places is probably just two distinct circles. Isolation usually leads to desolation, and in the context of Svalbard, this rule holds up with its rather large size yet rather small population of just a few thousand. As you've learned, this population is rather spread out, with those few thousand in Longyearbyen, few hundred in Barentsburg, and few dozen, at best, in Pyramiden, but then there's two other towns, two other fixtures of the high arctic landscape that need acknowledgement. Without covering their story, we couldn't walk away from this season feeling like we presented the comprehensive story of Svalbard, and, after all, this episode is six of six. Therefore, now's the time. So today, the story of Nielsund, Svalbard's northernmost settlement, and Sveagruva, Norway's dying mining town. Welcome back to Extremities. This is the final episode in our season about Svalbard, which means that it's certainly not the episode to start on if you haven't heard the earlier ones. We'll get back to the rest of Svalbard shortly, but first, I need to thank one of the sponsors that makes Extremities possible. Extremities was made possible by Dashlane. Dashlane is what I and so many others use to stay safe online. One of Dashlane's many functions is as a password manager. This allows you to have a big, long, complex password for each site you use so that if one gets breached, all your other accounts won't be compromised. When you go to log in to any site, Dashlane securely autofills your password so it actually ends up easier than filling in a short, insecure password. They also have a VPN, a password manager, dark web monitoring, breach alerts, and much more, and all of this works out to a monthly price lower than most standalone VPNs. What's more, it's an even better deal considering that, if you go to dashlane.com extremities, you can get a 30-day free trial of Dashlane Premium to try it for yourself. If you're convinced, at the end of that, you can also use the code EXTREMITIES for 10% off upgrading to Premium. Once again, that's dashlane.com extremities for a 30-day free trial than the code EXTREMITIES for 10% off upgrading to Premium, but now to the town of Sveagruva. In 1910, a Swedish man named Bertil Hogbom made his way to a previously unoccupied area of Svalbard. Venturing 22 miles or 70 kilometers southeast of Longyearbyen, near a fjord called Venmienford, he found new land that he thought might be suitable for mining, and so he laid a claim for it on behalf of a mining company. Now, I tried to say the name of the mining company, but it's a whole mess of letters that supposedly make up five Swedish words that I could never pronounce. Though claimed, the land at that point sat unused. The next year, the British Northern Exploration Company, whose name I like because it's much easier to pronounce, decided they might want to make a claim on it one day, so they built two cabins to try and stake out some ownership. In the end, they ended up never pursuing a claim, so the cabins were never useful to them. Mining didn't begin until 1917, when the land was sold to the Swedish mining company Spetsbergen Svenska Kolfalt. At that point, the land still didn't have a name, and so the Swedes went ahead and gave it one. Sveagruva, which means the Swedish mine. Not the most creative name, but at least it was not too difficult to pronounce. Mining in Sveagruva wasn't going all that well, though. If you've been paying any attention to the other episodes of the podcast, the fact that mining in Svalbard wasn't profitable shouldn't be surprising, and so that company then sold the land to another mining company. It was called some other mix of Swedish words that I can't pronounce. That company tried to make it work for about four years, but eventually they gave up as well. And so, by 1925, Sveagruva sat empty, but for a few guards there to maintain a claim on the land. In 1934, though, it was bought by yet another mining company, one called Stor Norsk. If that name sounds familiar, it should. 
is the company that owned and built Longyearbyen that we talked about quite a lot in episode 2. Now, why did Stormnorsk by Sveagruva, an unprofitable little mine that had been shut down for 9 years? The answer is that it was mostly a political calculation, not an economic one. The Norwegian government, who owned Stormnorsk, wanted to expand its real estate on Svalbard, and it just seemed easier to reopen an old mine than build a new one. Plus, opening a second mine would help supply northern Norway with domestic coal, which the Norwegian government was rather fond of. In 1941, things in Sveagruva changed, and if you've been paying attention to the podcast, you'll know exactly why. World War II came, and Operation Gauntlet evacuated everyone from the archipelago, Sveagruva included, but Sveagruva wasn't just evacuated, it was destroyed, in part by Operation Gauntlet, in part by a German submarine in 1944. After the war, the mine's operation restarted, but before long, it stopped again. This time though, it wasn't because of some secret war operation, it was just because coal prices were dropping and Stornorsk couldn't justify keeping Sveagruva open, and so, from 1949 to 1970, as the world was introduced to Elvis, then the Beatles, then David Bowie, and the US saw President Truman give way to President Eisenhower, then Kennedy, then Johnson, as fashion went from bowler hats to cardigans to bell-bottom jeans, Sveagruva sat silent, with only a few guards present to maintain Stornorsk's claim. Instead, Stornorsk invested in Longyearbyen, building it up as Norway's crown jewel on the archipelago. In 1970, mining started back up, but it sputtered on and off with little success, and by 1987, it had closed yet again. For the next 10 years, as the world saw the end of the Reagan years, the re-election of Bill Clinton, Beetlejuice, and Titanic, Sveagruva once again sat empty, with about 12 to 15 guards monitoring it. In 1997, mining began yet again, then, in 2001, they opened a new mine in the north of Sveagruva, Sveanord, and for the first time, Sveagruva had some good luck. The mine hit the jackpot, finding the biggest coal deposit Svalbard had ever seen, but four years later, bad luck returned when a massive fire broke out in Sveanord, and it wasn't easy to put out because, after all, if coal is good at one thing, it's burning. The fire wasn't fully extinguished for eight months, at which point, with caution, mining began yet again. In this modern era, very few workers actually lived in Sveagruva. It never saw the same normalization as Longyearbyen, with families and amenities and a real town forming. Instead, Sveagruva was a place for work. Miners would spend two weeks at a time there, then go back to Longyearbyen, where they had homes. Although Sveanord had presented one of the richest mining opportunities in Svalbard's history, its bounty didn't last forever. As coal prices dropped lower and lower, and the deposits in Sveanord began to dry up, the Norwegian government made the decision in 2017 to shut down Sveagruva yet again, and so, once more, the town sits empty, with only a few guards to look after it, waiting for the day that some other company with an impossible-to-pronounce name decides to see if they can finally be the ones to squeeze a profit out of the Swedish mine. But now, let's turn our focus northward. 97 miles, or 156 kilometers northwest of Sveagruva, is the northernmost settlement on Svalbard, Nielsund. Of course, the very fact that Nielsund exists probably makes you think that all that earlier talk of Longyearbyen being the northernmost town in the world was nonsense. Let me explain why that's not the case. If we defined a town as any grouping of people living together, the northernmost would likely be Barneo Ice Camp, the Russian camp on the ice near the North Pole set up every April that we talked about in episode 4. Of course, it'd be ridiculous to think that this is, in fact, a town. 
It's only open a month a year, you need permission to go there, it has no local government, it'd just be really hard to argue that this is a town. On the other hand, Longyearbyen is very clearly a town. It's populated year-round, you can go there without permission, it has a local government, it'd be really hard to argue that Longyearbyen is not a town. So the question is, where in between Barneo and Longyearbyen does a settlement become a town? Nilsund is one of those cases where it gets a little iffy. You see, Nilsund is definitely permanently inhabited. Depending on the time of year, it will be home to between 30 and 120 people, with a lower end during winter. What's more, these 30 to 120 people are most all civilians, not members of the military like in other high arctic settlements. That adds to its case for being a town. For the second point, ability to go without permission, that gets a sort of. You see, you can pretty much show up and explore the settlement without permission. There are a few tour companies that will run boats from Longyearbyen, catering to tourists interested in seeing Svalbard's northernmost community. With these, all you have to do is pay a few hundred dollars and you're welcomed warmly to Nielsund. To actually move there though, you need permission. In terms of who from and how, we'll get to that in a bit, but this is a strike against Nielsund's townness. Lastly, in terms of local government, Nielsund has none, which is another strike against. You see, Nielsund is completely owned and operated by the company Kings Bay, who provides all the infrastructure for the town. Given that lack of government, it seems pretty clear that Nielsund is not a real town. But Kings Bay is entirely owned by the Norwegian Ministry of Trade and Industry, which is part of the Norwegian government, which makes Kings Bay sort of a government? This should all give you an idea of why it's not so easy to classify Nielsund as a town or not a town, but from the perspective of this podcast, we're calling it not a town. There are just too many points against it being a real town, even if, in many ways, it looks, feels, and operates like one. That's why, until the angry emails come in, we'll continue calling Longyearbyen the northernmost town in the world. Of course, now comes the obligatory history section. Stop me if you've heard this one before. In the early 1900s, a businessman bought the mining rights to mine in the area and quickly set up shop. The mining, however, quickly proved to be unprofitable and was stopped about a decade or so later. It started and stopped until 1941 when the town, along with the entirety of Svalbard, was evacuated with Operation Gauntlet. After the war, mining resumed, but after a spate of fatal accidents and continued unprofitability, the town finally shut down mining for good in 1964 and was left abandoned, except for a few guards to keep the town maintained and safe. Yeah, so if you've been paying attention throughout the season, you'll notice by now, the story of Nielsund is almost exactly the same as the story of Sveagruva, which is almost exactly the same as the story of Pyramiden. It turns out that the circumstances were pretty much the same across the archipelago. Nielsund, though, eventually diverged in path from that of Sveagruva and Pyramiden. You see, sometime during that history, in the 1930s, Kings Bay, the company that owned Nielsund, owed the Norwegian government a ton of money and, after the government paid off the company's other debts, the owners of Kings Bay transferred ownership of the company to the government in order to get out of paying their debts. After mining stopped, the town was, of course, still owned by Kings Bay, which was owned by the government, and this led to a quick shift towards another industry, research. The first of this came in 1964 when the newly formed European Space Research Organization, which would eventually become the European Space Agency, picked Nielsen as a location for one of its ground stations, sites picking up signals from satellites flying above. This meant they had to build an airport, reopen the hotel, and set up all the infrastructure needed for scientific activity. Eventually, this ground station closed, 
but the infrastructure was still there, and so, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, more and more governments and institutions discovered that Nilsund was the perfect base for their Arctic research. Today, Nilsund is home to research bases from Norway, Germany, the Netherlands, France, the United Kingdom, Italy, India, Japan, China, and South Korea, and there's also a rotating cast of other researchers passing through on a temporary basis from universities and institutions all across the world. They've all been lured by the almost research resort setup of Nilsund. Kings Bay takes care of everything, at a cost of course, so that researchers can focus on what they do best. To get in, they have regular quick 45-minute flights from Longyearbyen Airport. About 10 of these run per month at a cost of $370 each way. Single rooms, including breakfast, lunch, and dinner, can be rented at about $150 a night. Snowmobiles go for $101 per day, plus $27 per day for a towed sled. A mandatory flare gun and rifle can be rented for $10 and $19 respectively, and they even run courses on how to use these for $257. A day's access to the marine laboratory goes for $111, and you can even get a dump truck for a day, including its driver, for $169. Everything you could possibly need for high arctic research is available in Nielsund for a price. A whole town dedicated to research is quite useful because it means that its inhabitants are understanding of peculiar rules. For example, equipment that could cause radio interference, such as cell phones, is restricted and therefore the internet can only be connected to by cable. The dedication of this site lets researchers conduct experiments that would not be possible down south in Longyearbyen. In addition to research, Nielsund has a small but significant cruise industry. It gets visited by a few dozen ships each year filled with passengers eager to see what one of the world's most northern settlements looks like. That's just a side gig of the town though. Its focus is research, which shows us, given the similar histories between all the towns of Svalbard, what the alternate future could have been for Sveagruva, Pyramiden, Bernsberg, or Longyearbyen. Nielsund and Longyearbyen found their pivot. Sveagruva, Pyramiden, and Berensberg did not. That's why, unless they do find an alternate industry, these towns will fade away into the Arctic landscape while the others prosper, at least hopefully. Let's finish out by talking about what's next for Svalbard. The archipelago has reason for optimism, but two major threats have emerged. The first is unsurprising, it's climate change. Now, of course climate change is a threat to everywhere, but Svalbard is under particularly acute pressure. You see, the towns of this high arctic archipelago are built to be frozen. You'll remember from earlier in the season the discussion of Longyearbyen's avalanche threat. The town is wedged in between two steep slopes which both get covered in snow throughout the long winter. Warmer temperatures though lead to wetter snow which is more likely to slide and turn into an avalanche. As you heard about earlier this season, within the past decade, people have died in Longyearbyen, in their homes, from avalanches. Whether the deaths can be directly attributed to climate change, that's up for debate, but one can expect the frequency of these slides to only increase as the temperature does. In addition, warmer temperatures are quite literally destabilizing the very land Longyearbyen and the other communities are built on. Buildings were traditionally built in the area by driving wooden pillars into the ground to act as a foundation. This worked great because, after all, the ground was frozen year-round, it was permafrost, meaning the pillars would be too. Nowadays, however, during the Arctic summers, the ground is melting to deeper and deeper levels. This has two effects. One, the ground will be moist for months, leading these pillars to rot. Eventually, this will destabilize them, and, left unattended, 
this could bring down a building. Unfortunately, these consequences of warmer temperatures will only continue to multiply. In the past 50 years, the temperatures on Svalbard have increased by, on average, about 7 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius. That may not seem like a lot, but when you average out the yearly temperature, that'd be enough to turn the climate of Stockholm into that of London. And remember, that's just what's happened already. According to the Climate in Svalbard 2100 report, by the end of this century, temperatures on the archipelago could increase by up to 18 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. That would fundamentally change what Svalbard is. An increase of that much in just one century would be monumental and catastrophic. Svalbard simply would no longer be Svalbard. And the worst part is, there's nothing much the people of Svalbard can do to stop it. Another force is also changing the landscape of Svalbard as we know it. That is, tourism. Tourism in a place like Svalbard can accurately be described as a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's fantastic for the economy and exposes more people to the fragile and unique high arctic environment, but on the other hand, every additional person walking out the doors of Longyearbyen Airport takes a toll on that same environment they came to see. The situation is almost identical to that of Iceland, just on a smaller scale. In the past decade, Iceland has seen a nearly unprecedented tourism boom that has brought millions into the tiny country of 360,000. Both places are focused on outdoors tourism in the far north, but what both have seen is a degradation of their nature as a result of tourism. Svalbard doesn't have too much to worry about yet. The problem is not yet acute. But as the tourism figures do nothing but increase, this will be a problem that they have to confront just like every overly popular tourism destination in the world. It's simply the delicate problem of avoiding becoming a victim of one's own success. Now, what I keep doing while writing this podcast is pulling up a map, rotating it around the pole, and just trying to find a place even remotely similar to Svalbard. There are places like Lapland in Arctic Finland, which has a strong tourism economy built around its northernness, but it's such a different type of tourism, focused heavily on the winter and package holidays, in such a different landscape, in such a more southerly place, that it could not be earnestly compared to Svalbard. There are places like Murmansk in Arctic Russia, which has a significant self-sufficient Arctic economy, but it's such a different type of economy, focused heavily on shipping and the military, with such different trends, seeing a slow and steady economic decline that it could not be earnestly compared to Svalbard. There are places like Grisfjord in northern Canada, which has a similarly northern permanent population, but it's such a different type of settlement, with austere living conditions and a subsistence-based economy that it could not be earnestly compared to Svalbard. I know I've said it before, but I'll repeat it. Places in the Arctic just don't look the way Svalbard does. The only slight equivalent in terms of highly developed western places in the Arctic Circle would probably be the towns and small cities in northern Scandinavia. That's to say, Svalbard's role as a comfortable hub for Arctic activity is perfect. For researchers and tourists, there is probably nowhere in the world where getting to and living in such an extreme location is so damn easy. There's a reason Svalbard is home to just about every northernmost anything. There's nowhere else in the world further north that could sustain such things socially or economically. That's not even considering that there are very few actual pieces of land any further north. Now, I know I've been redundant with all this talk of Svalbard's northernness, so I'll say something I haven't said before. If you want to see the High Arctic easily, not only is Svalbard the place, 
but now is also the time. Not only is the way Svalbard is now unique in terms of our planet, but it's also unique in terms of our time. It's only existed in its current form, with all the necessary facilities for tourists, for about the past 10 or 15 years, and it might only stay the way it is, with a manageable number of visitors and a still-frozen environment for a little longer. Now is the prime time for Svalbard. Now are the golden years. Unfortunately though, unless dramatic change happens fast, now will be yet a later climactic chapter in the book of Svalbard's history. We're now in Act 3. But book two is coming soon, and it will be dramatically different. We probably won't like book two of Svalbard's story, so all that we can hope for is that book one, act three, lasts on for as long as possible. I hope you enjoyed season two of Extremities. Having stuck around to this point, you've listened to almost 30,000 words about this sparsely populated Arctic archipelago, which is pretty incredible. Some good news for you. We'll be back quite soon with Season 3. It starts on November 27, 2019, only four weeks away from this episode's release date. I won't reveal the location, but I will reveal that it is by far our most ambitious season yet. We went on location to one of the world's most isolated societies and conducted dozens of interviews of everyone from random people on the street to the highest ranking politician of this location. Do make sure to come back and give season three a listen. Extremities is written and produced by Adam Chase and myself, Sam Denby, edited by Eric Schneider, and this is a Wendover Productions podcast. We'll be back in a month for season three of Extremities. <laughs>